With Elevate 150 from Notre Dame Federal Credit Union, you can grow financially stronger and so can Redeemer Radio. Visit NotreDameFCU.com slash Elevate. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This week, maestro Bob Nance of Heartland Sings is in the studio to talk about religious music with Bishop, including ways it can inspire and unite us. Then they take a deep dive into Handel's Messiah, a musical masterpiece with a rich history. Find out how you can watch Heartland Sings' performance of it beginning December 14th. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes and a special thank you to the sponsor of this week's episode, Brian Lytle of Kelly Automotive Group. We appreciate your support and all those that support this show. I'm Kyle Hyman, joined as always by Bishop Kevin C. Rhodes and a special guest today, Maestro Bob Nance of Heartland Sings. Thank you both for joining us today. You're welcome. Pleasure to be here. Bishop, would you mind starting us in prayer? Be happy to, and I thought I'd begin with our uh, Advent Marian Antiphon, the Alma Redemptoris Mater. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Loving Mother of the Redeemer, gate of heaven, star of the sea, assist your people who have fallen, yet strive to rise again. To the wonderment of nature, you bore your creator, yet remained a virgin after as before. You who received Gabriel's joyful greeting, have pity on us, poor sinners. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right, so Bishop, we haven't had very many guests on the show, and I think this might be our first time having a non-Catholic. So how did you and Maestro Nance meet, and what made you want to have him on as a guest? Well, you know, I met... Bob, I think early on, really, as Bishop of Fort Wayne, South Bend, I don't know how many years ago, but it was early on, and um, we immediately hit it off, and I, I love music. I'm not very good at it, but I love it. I enjoy it, especially good quality music, classical music, sacred music. I love Handel's Messiah, so I, I was talking to Bob about it, and I was thinking, well, that'd be great to have like a diocesan-sponsored performance of Handel's Messiah. So I asked Bob about whether that would be possible, and, and he thought it was a great idea. So together with, I think, the University of St. Francis, I think they helped sponsor it too, if I recall, uh, we did this together. And we had great attendance from people in the diocese and beyond. So yeah, I really appreciate uh, Bob reaching out to me, and and I think the Heartland Sings is such a, a wonderful group here in our community. So yeah. Well, I can elucidate a little bit on that. First of all, it's just uh -huh. a pleasure to be here with one of our most revered spiritual leaders in Fort Wayne. I have great respect for you, Bishop, and all that you do for the Catholic Church. I think we're all Catholic, ultimately, so I would be included in that, at least in, to some degree. Um, uh, I have sounds a, good to me. I have a very uh, broad faith-based background. I was raised in the Southern Baptist Church but also most of my musical training through um, singing in a boy choir in the Anglican tradition at Bruton Parish Church in Williamsburg, Virginia. And I have served just about every denomination known to man 
uh, throughout my <laughs> career, but most most mostly Presbyterian, congregational, and also, as uh, Bishop knows, I also have served the temple here as a, a musician, and so I'm I'm pretty pretty broad based. And in that I believe that God is in everything and in everyone, I feel pretty well covered <laughs> in that regard. <laughs> and that then with regard to Messiah, Bishop is right. It was a, a wonderful partnership with the diocese. And Heartland at the time was an, a group in residence at the University of St. Francis. And the, the three institutions together produced probably one of the most stunning messiahs that Fort Wayne has ever experienced, and it came as a great partnership, and um, that's when I got to really know the bishop, and I just think that he is a wonderful asset to our community and to the church, and I'm just glad to, I'm glad I know him. Uh, Thanks a lot, Bob. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking too, we should do another project together. We will. It doesn't have to be the messiah, but yeah, we'll talk about that. <laughs> yes, I mean, and I would love it because, you know, music is the great unifier, second only maybe to our, our Lord, but the, the, I, the way that music unites us across all sorts of divisions that we set up for ourselves as individuals, that's one of the powers of music. We're going to talk specifically about the Messiah, and I'm excited to hear more about that and, and kind of dive into some of the details, uh, but... As a choir director, as a maestro, what do you see your role or your your main job to be? Counselor. Okay. <laughs> You'd be surprised. Like a, yeah, well. Like a therapist? Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Um, okay. Well, I, I, let me just say that my job is a, a director of vocal musicians, and I I have training in orchestral conducting and in, in um, choral music and opera. And I have found that in working with any musician that I spend a good deal of time helping process either the musical moment, which is directly tied to your heart, and sometimes the moment to delve into the spirituality of it, the emotionality of it, is afforded me. And I I don't take that responsibility lightly. Music is so visceral to the heart. And when you're engaged in it, sometimes it just takes you into places that that are treasured, and you have to hold that as sacred. It's sacred, totally sacred. Mm-hmm. And so I find a lot of times I can be, I can find myself in a state of where my choir might be a little uptight about a performance, or they might be struggling with a section, and how do you navigate your way through it? And it's, so it's more than just talking about the skills of how you do what you do. It's about the meaning of the text, uh, why we do what we do. And if you don't start with the heart, you really don't have much to go on. It just turns out that most of the time you are you know, like a chief cheerleader, an encourager, a soother of concern, because when you perform, if things don't go well or if people respond to it in a way you don't expect, it really cuts right to, through to the heart. And so you may find that afterwards you can say, we did our best, it went well. So you might be in a position of having to soothe feelings or when things go really well, remind everybody there that it's not about us 
it's not a way of self-aggrandizement. It's we are there to provide reflection and, you know, to inspire people to be their better selves through our music. So some of what you said there sounds like you're really trying to help people get more to an emotional performance than just a technical performance. Would you say that's true? Well, it's definitely not a technical thing. Technique is certainly a part of the process, but technique in of itself does not inspire anybody. It might be amazing, you might think it's great, but if it's missing the heart, what's the point? We have to make sure that we're transmitting some sort of meaning. Even if it's a song without words, there's got to be some connection there that you are mindful of when you're you're performing so that you're transmitting that, that feeling. Right. So what's your process for choosing pieces that you're going to have your choirs perform? Well, I guess it depends on the context. If if I'm preparing for worship, then I'm going to focus on what is the message, what scripture is being used, what is the minister's message going to be, and then I try to select music that supports that message. I'm in a situation on a regular basis where I work directly with spiritual leaders on choosing everything from the hymns to the responsorial music, and then the anthems are pretty much left up to me. That's how the process works. I'll work with the scripture of the day. If I'm preparing a concert, I love to work with themes. Most choral concerts have a series of pieces in them that you have to put together in some sort of logical order that delivers your overall message. So having a theme is usually very helpful. If your performance is all centered around a particular work, then at that point, that that work is done, and all you have to do is focus on making sure that the meaning of the text... Of course, that's always true. Any piece that you're working on, whether it's a multi-movement work or individual pieces, you have to start with the text and then go from there. Bishop, what do you see as the role of music inside of liturgical not performance, but prayer, but and yeah. outside of liturgy. Yeah, that's what I was going to talk about. So, and I'd be interested in how Bob, you know, Bob's experience with, with Catholic liturgical music. But one of my favorite quotes is by Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach, who said that the, the aim and final end of all music should be none other than the glory of God and the refreshment of the soul. <laughs> and I love that idea of refreshment of the soul. But in the Catholic Church, you know, really we consider the musical tradition that we have as really a treasure. And it's something that's developed over many centuries, going back to the early church, really, various cultures, both in the East and the West. And the whole musical tradition that we have, the sacred music as we call it, is called to express the truth of the mystery that we're celebrating in the liturgy. So it's an integral part of the solemn liturgy. And therefore, it's very scriptural. The words are important. The lyrics are important, as well as the actual song. And I think in the Second Vatican Council stressed this, really the, the pride of place that Gregorian chant has had, and even the Second Vatican Council recognized Gregorian chant as especially suited to the Roman liturgy, kind of has pride of place. 
Uh, we kind of lost that for some reason after the council, although the council said we should be maintaining it. We have the tradition of other kinds of sacred music, especially polyphony. Just last week or two weeks ago, I had a confirmation mass at uh, Christ the King in South Bend, and they did a beautiful Palestrina Gloria that was polyphony. And I, I've been seeing as I go around the diocese, really more and more Gregorian chant being used again, more and more polyphony being used, and also newer composed music that is of, of better quality, I would say, than perhaps some of the liturgical music back in the 70s and 80s. You know, it's, it's ordered towards the liturgy, intimately connected with the liturgical action, both the scriptures of the day, but also when we're talking about the offertory or the different acclamations during the Eucharistic prayer, all helping one enter into the sphere of the sacred. So there's a dignity about it, a sense of beauty about it, and it's truly to be prayer. It's not really a performance. It's intimately linked with the worship of God. So I think we've suffered from some uninspired texts. We just came out, my Committee on Doctrine of the USCCB, really correcting some theological deficiencies in the wordings of hymns. But also we've experienced some music that really, at liturgies, that have really been a bit dis uh, distasteful, not really beautiful. Anyhow, I, I don't want to go on too long, but I'd just be interested in Bob's reflections from your experience of music in Catholic Church or Gregorian chant, polyphony, or, you know, it sounds like you're following the same principles. Oh, absolutely. Listen, music history is tied directly to the Catholic Church, at least up to the time of the Reformation. So the first century and a half of all music history was directly tied to the Church, the Catholic Church. And our understanding, even today, of what what is beautiful and aesthetically appropriate for worship is directly tied to some of the 5th, the 6th century when chant was codified and the scola cantorums were created, you know, basically to, to make sure we had good quality music that did indeed, as you say, Bishop, focus on the mystery. We've lost a lot of that, the idea of the mystical in worship and the, the it's almost sort of a faith issue about understanding that God is here even though you don't see, you know, faith in things unseen. When you go to a, a high liturgical mass, there's a lot of mystery and the, the movement, the aesthetics, the robes, the smells, the candles, the music, the chant, where many voices in chant form one voice. That, that even in contrast to anything polyphonic would have been highly revered and reverent and reserved for only those texts that were most important. I don't know. I think young people today, gosh, I say that now because I just turned 60. I'm calling people young people. <laughs> ah, I'm still pretty young at heart here. But I, even in my time, I, when I was entering my ministry, which I, I say effectively started when I was in my early 20s, after all my training and I, I went to work for the church, I could see that popular culture and elements of popular culture were much more appealing than anything that the church had to offer because they were moving away from the institution a little bit. I think uh, they were looking for mystery. They found it in many ways. 
And I remember when the CD, the, was it the Benedictine Monks of Santo Domingo? They released yeah. a, a CD. It's probably been 20 years ago. But it was the hottest thing. And, the, and young audiences were grabbing it up because it was so mystical. And it had, you know, and then this sort of, you know, to talk a little bit about in secular culture that there tends to be this drive towards music that is has a certain mystery to it, but it's not necessarily going to take them down a positive path. You know, again, that's the power of music. So the fact that the church has remained steadfast, but also sort of much reclaiming, as you say, Bishop, with uh, some of the looking at, at what music that we find suitable for worship, um, we don't just necessarily need to say that all music is acceptable in the eyes of God. I think it really depends on where your heart is. And yes, all styles of music, I think, can be appropriate for for worship. But you do have to think about what you're trying to achieve with it and the thoughtfulness of it and the concern with its uh, aesthetic for the the moment is just so important. And it's it's not an easy task. It's not an easy task, especially when popular culture um, pretty much invades our day everyday life. Mm-hmm. You know, Bob, I have a question. We also, besides, you know, kind of giving pride of place to Gregorian chant, as specially suited to our to the Roman liturgy, though we have welcomed polyphony and and even some of the popular religious music if it's suitable for the liturgy and for devotion. Also, the issue of instruments, you know, obviously with chant, often it's a cappella, but um, we still consider the organ as the the instrument of sacred music par excellence, uh, mm-hmm. though we do now allow other instruments. I was thinking, what do, what do you think about that? Well, instruments are just an extension of the voice. So, I, I, and I absolutely think if they're offered in praise to the Lord, that's absolutely acceptable. I just think about some of that wonderful music of Gabrielli in the, was it the Basilica in, is it Venice? Where, where St. Mark's. St. Mark's, yeah. Um, you would have had instruments uh, along with the voices, and to have that, whether it was the instruments or the voices singing or both, has to be extremely exciting. I mean, just, just you put the aesthetic of a nice building together mm-hmm. with the human voice that just marry that together and you've got such aesthetic beauty such inspiration if that's that's about as close to heaven as it gets i think <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah what is the process for those in the congregation maybe for some of us kind of struggling to really appreciate music or really understand the difference between a really great quality song and and an average one how do we appreciate music as art and then how do we transition that into appreciating music as prayer? I'm going to jump right in on that one, Kyle. I think okay. everybody has a knows what they like, and they sure. know when they like it, when they hear it. And uh. <laughs> they may not have the words or have not studied aesthetic or have the words to describe why they like it, but you know it when you hear it. Mm-hmm. Uh, see, that's where the heart comes in. So if you're listening to something and you think, oh, that's that's nice, and you just have sort of a, yeah, that's a nice response to music, well, okay. I would not put that on a high aesthetic plane. But if something draws you into it and you can't get enough of it, or it drives you to tears, or just well, you can feel the emotional response to the music, that is 
the ultimate goal. It's, it's beauty. It is the aesthetic of the moment. And all you have to do is, is pay attention. You know, driving music sometimes can have a visceral effect to the body just because it drives, but it does not necessarily move you to beauty or to your better self. And I think that's really it. That may just be the baseline for a congregation. If you're listening to a piece of music and it inspires you to some greater good, then that's that's a good thing. Um, sure. If you just say, oh, well, that's nice, well... <laughs> I'm not sure that it, it's nice, but it doesn't necessarily inspire you to that that greater good. So that really, I think, is the ultimate goal. Certainly, is mine. I'm only speaking for myself here. That I want the uh, the musical experience in worship to inspire those that are there to hear it. And I don't just say the congregation. I include the participants in worship. It has to inspire them to their better aesthetic self, their better created self. And when that's if that's the goal, then you're going to find a high aesthetic response to your art making. And I will say that everybody can do it. It does not have to be perfection. That is an elusive concept anyway. But true perfection is when we can all be at peace with one another and enjoy and appreciate what gifts we share. And Bishop, you mentioned that, especially within the liturgy, that music shouldn't be a performance, it should be a prayer is there a difference between like a, a soloist or a choir singing a piece and something that's intended for the congregation to sing? And is one better than the other? Or how do we no, position I think, that within liturgy? Yeah, no, I think basically both, whether it's just the choir or, or cantor or the congregational singing, you know, one has to be, have that sense of this is an act of worship. It's not to to do a performance for pleasure of or for adulation. It's mm-hmm. um, it's an act of giving glory to God and helping to lead people to an experience, an encounter with God through the beauty of music. Experience one's of uh, uh, faith. That whole idea of the sense of mystery. When you think of the beautiful works of sacred music through the centuries, people who've composed that that music i think we're deeply imbued with the sense of mystery and and that our faith then is nourished by the melodies etc that flow from the hearts of other believers especially from musicians you know beauty is a key to the mystery you know saint john paul ii wrote about this in his letter to artists and he speaks of how beauty is a call to transcendence and i think religious music uh, really does have that function, I guess, because it's, you know, God is, is beauty. And um, so, I, yeah, I, I hope that answered your question, Kyle. I'd, I'd like to add to that, uh, Bishop. One of the, uh, this comes right out of the Catholic Church, the key role of, this, of the chorister or any singer or cantor in the service was to represent the congregation. And, mm. and so the focus is always on, as Bishop said, on the, to the glory of God. But there are times when the congregation, in the course of liturgy, where you have maybe a reading and some sort of response, there's always a movement through liturgy where there's a response from the congregation. But sometimes that response can be represented by a soloist or cantor, or it can be represented by 
acquire. Those, and that is the role. It is it again. The 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 congregation can be inspired, as I think was the goal when the church said, "Look, we're going to create scola cantorum so that our singing is really very well refined and orderly, so that the congregation can get a clear message." And um, you know, but that's really the role. The role is to represent the, uh, the congregational response if it's not done. As a congregation, you have representatives who actually stand in for that, and that could be a cantor or the choir. I, I agree, and I, you know, Bob, I have a question. One of the really important things for us is that is is also the texts that are used. Now, obviously, you know, we use a lot of the psalms um, mm-hmm. in in the Catholic Church, not just the responsorial psalm, but other parts of the liturgy too. We kind of after the Second Vatican Council. There were a lot of these newly composed hymns, which are fine. And that's more perhaps of the Protestant tradition, but we're, we allow. But now we're kind of getting back to actually using the liturgical texts, not only the Sanctus, and I mean, we've always had that, and the Agnus Dei, and the Gloria, mm-hmm. and the Kyrie, and you know, mm-hmm. we have these great composers who did texts. And that's so important for us is the text, too, the lyrics. And I see now that we're, you know, we were getting into that thing where we would do like four hymns during mass, but then we would also do the the liturgical texts. We're kind of getting back to at least some places where maybe less hymn singing and more like, for example, chanting the introit at the beginning of mass Mm -hmm. and, and not doing an entrance hymn or at communion doing a communion antiphon. Often they come from the Psalms. So I see that we're kind of seeing a restoration in that sense of of really liturgical the, the liturgical text being put to music, either Gregorian chant or other types of chant. Do, what's right. your thoughts oh, oh, on no, that? Oh no, I think that's absolutely right. That was one of the things I, again, I, I being raised in the Anglican tradition, tradition, there was a lot of that in that too, which of course is obviously an offshoot of the Catholic Church. And one of the things I liked about it was that orderliness, the proper of the Mass was adhered to. You would have the introit, the Kyrie, the Sanctus, and, and, and so forth. So that's just part of the structure that gives us a sense of connectedness and regularity. Everybody can, can tap into it because they, it's, it's familiar. You know, there, there's enough of alteration in a particular service that that people can tap into but it's the the universality of the voice it's the training it uh, that comes over time in your lifetime where you can just feel it it's just like when you say god be with you and, and somebody just says and with you also you know just that back and forth yeah. it's a that's a training that's part of our training and i i think it's valuable let me ask you this question some of the great composers who've done requiem masses or you know various masses whether it's bach or mozart now some of them really even though they're the text of the mass they really don't they're not appropriate for liturgical use because they're often very very long for example and uh, but you can have that in a concert with beautiful uh, concerts mm-hmm. of sacred music i was wondering if you'd done anything like that or do you have any favorite Masses uh, has Heartland does done any of that or requiem oh. masses? Oh yes, uh, yes, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think my uh, my favorite, of course, is the Mozart requiem. Which when I first came to Fort Wayne on uh, Mozart's two uh, hundredth, 
well, the 200th commemoration of his passing in 1991, we brought uh, a gentleman from Christ College in Cambridge, England. His name was Richard Maunder, and he had he had uh, been a he's a mathematician, and he was an avocational musician and a builder of instruments. But his favorite composer was Mozart, and he had researched all of the folklore surrounding Mozart's passing and the the mystery around his requiem, which was never completed before he passed away. And he would go to Salzburg, where they would have a regular convention of Mozart. And so throughout uh, all of these years, he finally formulated the an understanding about Mozart's music. And then there was discovered a, uh, a sheet, uh, a, a manuscript, where Mozart had written a few things on it, which I think he never really did. So it was quite surprising to find a sketch. And it had some portions of the Requiem Mass which had not ever appeared in any editions. So he took it upon himself to <laughs> discard anything that was not from the original manuscript of, in Mozart's hand and finish the Requiem based on some of these notations. And wow. we premiered that work in Fort Wayne in 1991. And it was very exciting because the music is so moving. And I think the, probably the most famous from that is the Lacrimosa, the tears. Yeah. Yeah. And well, the Diacide is not bad. <laughs> I have to say, yeah. the whole the whole work is just <laughs> exceptional. And Hartland has has done the Requiem Mass uh, on several occasions. And probably one of the most moving was when we partnered with Fort Wayne Ballet, and they actually danced portions of it. You want to talk about a powerful opportunity to see. Uh, to hear the liturgy, but also to see the the movement. It was a very religious experience, I think. Wow. Um, but yeah, I'd that's love a to hear word. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'd like the Diaz Ire at my funeral, by the way. Okay. Um, well, but, uh, I, hope, I, I hope you're around for a long time, and I might be too old to be playing in it, but if I could. <laughs> but Bob, you yeah. know what my favorite Mozart piece is as far as sacred music is the Ave Verum Corpus. Ave, Ave, and yes. we do that quite a bit in, uh, in well, our, some of our choirs. That's probably one of my favorites or favorite mm-hmm. Mozart liturgical piece. You've done yeah. that, I'm sure. Yes, many times. And it, and it's, the artistry is in its simplicity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Doesn't have to be complicated yeah. to be beautiful. Right. All I'm right, asking well, questions instead of you, Kyle. Sorry, I was just well, no, taking we, your we, role. We got a, so many questions, and I want to get to talking about Handel's Messiah, too. So uh, just a reminder for people, for future episodes, you can ask questions for Bishop by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we're going to talk more with Maestro Bob Nance from Heartland Sings about Handel's Messiah, what makes us piece so special that's coming up on truth and charity with bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by notre dame federal credit union welcome back to truth and charity with bishop Rhodes. i'm kyle hyman here with our bishop and our special guest maestro bob nance from heartland sings and we have a performance coming up of handel's messiah it's going to be on-demand video available. Can you share a little bit about what is going to be happening and, and how people can catch it? You bet. Well, as you know, in the age of COVID, it's been a real challenge just to maintain the vocal art because of the, the concern around 
expiration of air droplets and aerosols. And we sure. have worked very hard to get that under control and to protect everybody. And I am just, I'm sitting up a prayer because we have managed to get two major television recordings done and nobody has gotten sick. And Good. so we are Great. grateful for that. We got together just before Thanksgiving and occupied the sanctuary at Plymouth Congregational Church downtown, and we recorded Handel's Messiah with orchestra and chorus. The chorus was masked. Everybody was masked, in fact, with few exceptions. I think the soloist unmasked, so it was very clear. And we have put together two performances uh, for television. One will be just the holiday version, and that is basically the Christmas portion of the oratorio and the Hallelujah Chorus, and that will be aired on December 12th. That's, yeah, this coming Saturday at 7 p.m. on Fort Wayne's NBC. And then uh, it will be available on demand at heartlandsings.org. You can order an on-demand ticket, and then you can watch it from any time, December 14th, for 30 days. So if you want to catch it once and you like it, you can watch it every day for the entire 30 days if you want. It'll be available to you. And that's the full two-hour uh, televised version of Messiah. There are obviously some cuts because the Messiah lasts about two hours and 25 minutes. But okay. uh, that's it's still it's, – it's complete. The story's there and uh, a very nice performance. And we did it with – not much larger ensemble than Handel had in his original performance. So we think it's authentic. It isn't going to be the largest kind of thing that we have become accustomed to in this country and around the world, but uh, it's going to be a little bit more of an intimate performance, but all just as moving. The two-hour televised production will happen on December 20th at 7 p.m. on my network TV. And I think that's uh, cable channel 21.3 or digital channel. I, I'm not sure how that works, but there, my TV is another um, affiliate of NBC here in Fort Wayne. Okay. And we'll make sure to have links and information about this in the show notes so people can go there, but also heartlandsings.org. Yeah, all the information is there on the website. Yep. Mm -hmm. So why is Handel's Messiah such a classic of all of the pieces that have been you know, written at that time and since and before? Why is this such a, a big piece? I really only have an opinion. I'm not sure that there's okay. any any one thing that I can point to that would state why. But something that has lasted this long and has uh, touched so many hearts in the time that it's been with us, it says something. It says something about the artistry that's in the work. It says something about the message. So, yeah, Handel was first and foremost a popularist. He knew what people wanted. And at the time of writing this, even though he was steeped in the Italian opera tradition, he really adapted well to what English audiences were about. And I also have to say that even though he came, obviously, uh, through the court system, he was, you know, in Germany, had, you know, the blessings of the royalty there, and then, of course, eventually the blessings of royalty and some support from the royalty in England, he really was not doing so well financially in the 1740s. And so this was just a, an attempt to see, uh, I feel sure, if he could recoup some of that 
poverty, such as it was, by uh, writing something that was uh, extraordinary and very popular. And, you know, without major backers, I think that he had to work with what he could find and could afford. So uh, I was telling Bishop before the show that I'm intrigued by the fact that he actually used musicians who were maybe not the most expensive and maybe sort of secondary artists that were available in the area. And I likened it in Fort Wayne to, you know, going to one of our local establishments and finding just normal people to jump in and sing in the choir. Normal, thanks, <laughs> is not, not the highest possible artists, maybe, or people that hung out in bars and sang. And, and they were good, but you know, it was not the upper echelon of, of singers at the time. So it was, that was a bit of a controversy for him. At least that's the story. And what I like to think about is that Handel's Messiah had a very humble start. And that humble beginning, that sort of, um, I guess it just wasn't a performance that, say, everybody who was in power or in the glitterati at the time had not given their blessing to this, but yet it still got its airing, and it's, and it's lived to become one of the greatest works of all times. So in, in a sense, isn't it interesting that the oratory starts about the birth of Jesus and that whole story and how amazingly humble that beginning was, and now look where we are today. So there's a very loose relationship there, but humble beginnings sometimes leads to great things. and. So when it was written, it was done very modestly. I can't give you an exact number, but I don't think there were more than 16 to 20 singers, and the soloists were from the choir. And I think that accounts for the reason that the solos in the Messiah are so widely varied. And he wrote it with the idea that he could substitute pieces or change things out depending on the demands of the time. So that's, that's just sort of a generalized, opinioned version of the story. So this is not a historical-based reflection. It's my personal view. Uh, So don't judge me if I've got my facts a little bit off. But generally speaking, the work had a very humble beginning, and it has become well-known, I think, because it, it spoke to the common man. And that's just a testament to his appreciation of what people were actually hankering to listen to and enjoyed, and he basically gave them what they wanted. But at the same time, Handel was very humble, too, uh, in that he he just could feel the Spirit moving through him such that he did this in about three weeks. And as Bishop said, <laughs> he ended the work by saying, Solo Deo Gloria. He that really, I think he felt that this music just flowed through him and that it was a gift from God. And I, I agree. It has proven itself to be so. And it, it matters not what I think or what anybody else thinks, but people love this work. Yeah. Um, so it, you know, it's, it has its own life and, and its beauty. And, it, and it, I, I know, Bishop, you, you listen. When you read the Isaiah prophecy, 
you can't help but hear this music. <laughs> I know. Just uh, during Advent, you know, the yeah. we have these readings at the liturgy. Uh, the second Sunday of Advent, we had the comfort ye my people from Isaiah, then every valley shall be exalted. And I, I can't pray that or or reflect on those readings without the music of Handel in my mind. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I wanted to ask you, you know, the, there's three, uh, three parts, of course, to the Messiah. The first is really the prophecy and then the birth of Christ. And second right. part's the passion. Third part is resurrection and ascension. My favorite part is part one. I don't know why. I mean, I love, obviously, the Hallelujah Chorus in, in part three is, the be- I mean, magnificent. But, but I just love part one for some reason. I don't, uh, I think that's my favorite part. But I wanted to ask you, this idea of standing for the Hallelujah Chorus, do you know why or was that, I remember hearing a story that the king, I guess it was that's, King George, yeah. stood up, and that's is that was that historical or is that a legend or what? <laughs> it's I think it's just legend. <laughs> I think it's legend. Uh, you know, of course, you know. <laughs> uh, I guess by now, Handel was back in the good graces of King George. I think who was his? If I've got this right, he was he was in when he was in Germany. George was there, and then he married into the. Uh, British monarchy, and then of course, then he had actually gone to England to see if he could cut it there. And this is also another story. But when George was crowned king of England, well, guess what? Then he was like, "Oh my gosh, I left the court, and I wasn't not exactly in the good graces of the king, and I came to England. I just I liked it here, stayed here." And so when <laughs> when he was then then the monarch, so he the story goes that he wrote the water music. And floated down a barge performing music at the coronation so as to gain favor again. And <laughs> so, I, I mean, obviously he didn't get his head chopped off, so he was okay. Um, and, yeah, so I guess the story with Messiah, though, goes that, that at some point this, that oratorio had gone on pretty long. And then when the Hallelujah Chorus was up, the, the monarchy stood because they just needed to stretch their legs. <laughs> I don't know. And, and actually, um, now you want to talk about uh, something that's mystical and faith-based, and we can talk about the Fibonacci principle, right? The or the the mathematical uh, numerical system that sort of exists in nature, like the Nautilus curve, and uh, it's uh-huh. sort of the two-thirds to one-third ratio. Well, when you hit the Hallelujah Chorus, that is at the moment where you would have that. Fibonacci line. So you take a complete line and about, I guess, two-thirds of the show is over at the point of the Hallelujah Chorus. So there's there's something about that moment um, that makes it sort of in line with nature and beauty because of its its connection, its mathematical connection to that principle. Wow. Interesting. So, yeah. Yep. So you mentioned this is an over two-hour piece. That he wrote in three weeks, yeah. And I think I read somewhere that it's like a quarter of a million notes. Is all of this kind of is this normal? Is this abnormal for music like this? No, not for not for oratorio or passions, anything like. That. They just tend to be long because there's a lot of scripture to cover, and okay. um, they're long for today's ears. But uh, if you even if you read the Bach reader, Bach wrote frequently about how he was constantly told by either the civic leaders or the religious leaders in the church that he needs to speed it up a little bit because it's going on too long. And um, 
when he finally pulled together the St. Matthew Passion, he said, I don't care how long it takes. I've got to write it because it's right to do so. And um, wow. yeah, long works, that they're, they're, they're pretty common in history, but whether or not we as audiences today can handle that, that remains to be seen. I've never done a complete, absolutely every inch of Messiah ever, but I've only left out maybe 20 minutes in all the performances I've done. All right. Well, we are out of time, but thank you so much to Maestro Bob Nance. Thank you, Bishop, for joining us for this. A reminder, people can go to heartlandsings.org for more information, links to social media, get some tickets to the performances online and all the information about when it's going to be broadcast and all of that. So thank you so much. Reminder, if people have questions, you can send them with the Holy Cross College text line. Just text 260-436-9598. And before we go, can we get your Episcopal blessing, Bishop? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you, Bob. You're welcome. Visit heartlandsings.org for more information on their upcoming performance of Handel's Messiah. There's a link in the show notes. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Notre Dame Federal Credit Union has a special mission to serve the Catholic Church in America. In 2020 alone, we've served over 800 parishes, schools, and nonprofits in more than 25 dioceses nationwide. We are a member-owned, not-for-profit cooperative, working hard to create a national Catholic financial alternative to the for-profit banks. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.